All right. It's been a while since just Miles and I geeked out. So now we're going to talk about Ruby and Java and web development and object relational models. I'm Lyle Troxel, and in the air with me is Miles Elam. Hey, Miles. How's it going? So I'm like seriously developing Android now. And I mean seriously in the sense that I've got a feature I've got to work on and I'm starting to understand it. And the integration of Kotlin is amazing. I mean, you can take a whole class in Java and paste it in the .kt file and it will transpose it into Kotlin for you. It was so funny because I was trying to figure something out and my colleague was like, oh, just just write it in Java <laughs> and paste it in. I'm like, what? oh my gosh, it's so awesome. Um, it's made to target the JVM, so it makes sense that it would do that. Not to mention it was made – the language was made by the folks who made IntelliJ. Yeah, and Android Studio, of course, is the IntelliJ folks as well, I'm assuming. Um, any case, really sweet. It's the IDE, though, that I'm cop- copying and pasting Java and transposing it into Kotlin is definitely <coughs> my IDE that's doing that. It's nothing to do with language, really, uh, except for this direct mapping. So Kotlin is not too far away from Swift, syntactically. Or JavaScript. I mean, it all feels pretty good. And the thing I'm the, – the biggest learnings about – any programming at this time in my career is that what you call things are different, mm-hmm. right? Like in the Android stack, there's this concept of an action, and that's actually kind of like the intent of the user, if you will, or what's something what's happening right now. Then there's fragments, which are kind of these larger containers. Then there's views, which is kind of conceptually what you mm-hmm. understand views. And I'm learning all this in the context of the Netflix application structure. So there are some things in there that I've done like Google search on just to see what people are chatting about and there's no mention i'm like oh this is our class like mm-hmm. this is something that we developed in-house i was inspecting how our render path works and and how our pipelines work for rendering and realized that the entire pattern that was being used um, i found a resource on it talking about it at a conference of course it was my colleague who was doing the lecture about it because he wrote it <laughs> so I, I go and gra- grab lunch with him we catch up and stuff i'm just to be clear and i'm like getting like a uh, you know expert guide teaching mm-hmm. exactly it was pretty cool uh, neat patterns, though. Anyway, I'm. It's one of those things where I'm learning really fast, but I'm not very productive. Obviously, right? So I'm doing this relatively simple thing we had to do on iOS and on Android, and it has to do with the the page where when you're looking in the Netflix application, you click on something and it opens up on a mobile app. It opens up a kind of view. Mm-hmm. We call that a display page. And when you uh, you can navigate around, and one of the things you can do in the display pages on the on the phones is there's different tabs. You can see episodes, you can see trailers, things of that nature. And so we're adding another button. I'm adding another button for a test, and I'm doing it on iOS and an Android. And the iOS one was done in like four days, and the Android one is me learning. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> and it's interesting, you know, being like a senior dev, that experience of learning is most the, the most challenging part about it is convincing myself that it's okay for me to take the time to learn something new. And not that I'm not being productive, right? Like I, I want to be amazing and, you know, stunning colleague, blah, blah, blah. I want to be really productive. Right. But it comes down to it. I'm just not going to be as fast. And so the, the challenge is just teach it, telling myself every day, it's okay. You're moving slower. Eventually you'll catch up. I've been writing a little bit of Ruby. What do you think? <sighs> Talk about a different language, man. It wasn't very hard to get done what I needed to do. It was. Are you modifying an existing application? I'm basically writing uh, automation scripts. Reading through a directory, okay, grab all of the JSON files, write to this verification REST endpoint, compare the results that come back. Like, look at the results that come back. Um, is the expected the same as the actual? How far are they from from that point? What's the source data? Is it like JSON data or? Uh, yeah. Data? Uh, yes. 
Okay, so you're using a JSON library that parses it for you and such. Yeah, I'm just using the built-in JSON So why are you using Ruby? Because that's what the rest of the project uses for testing. Oh, so it's a testing framework. Well, it's not a testing framework. It's simply if they are building this project, they will have Ruby installed. They will not necessarily have Node installed. And so if I use Ruby, anyone who's working on the project will have this facility available. I mean, will be able to run the script. Is the core application, not the testing part, I understand you're doing the testing part, is the core application written in Ruby? No, it's in Java. The tests come along with it. So, okay. And the people who are so going to be... a project that was already running. Right, and the yeah. people who are going to be running, uh, who would run this script, are part of the testing group, and the testing group runs all those things that are all in they're Ruby. Doing. Yeah. So the entire company is doing that stuff in Ruby, and therefore the resources are Ruby, therefore stay in that language. I right. That. Okay. Even though I can code in Node, you know, 10 times faster... Are you using YAML doing. files at all for config and such? I'm not using any config files. It's, okay. it's literally, you know, it's a command line. Something comes in. It's funny. I mean, it's funny. It's really common in Ruby environment for YAML to be there too. And for YAML, like when you're doing testing stuff, to have YAML part of your testing. For example, locale information normally in a Ruby mm-hmm. structure is done in, in YAML. But I see that considering your, none of your source codes that way, there wouldn't be anything... From, Pass, yeah, compatible. I I like about Ruby the fact you can do the the shebang, you know, make it executable and know that it's going to be a Ruby file no matter what you name it. So it was predictable that I could say, oh, here's a you know a hash is a comment, you know, and the end because it's comparable to Bash, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and the end on it reminds me a lot of many other shell languages. Yeah, it has a shell language something and then end. Yeah. Um, the ELSIF reminded me of Perl. Mm-hmm. Um, you mean being one word? Yeah, without one the E. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's funny. That is like Perl. Except yeah. for Perl's a lot noisier in the in the character the characters that it's used for syntactically. Yeah, it it still kind of weirds me out the fact that parentheses are only needed if you have less uh, if you have more than one argument. Yeah. Um, and so I, I get like they're trying to make a language that can do DSL, be a domain specific language, but I still kind of get the heebie jeebies sometimes while doing it. And that's just yeah. like my experience with Ruby is limited, and that's fine. It is odd to me, and I still haven't quite got the nuance behind if you're iterating through an array, for example, and you have dot each do <laughs> versus each open squiggly brace. Yeah, and then close weird, right? brace. And I'm. I, it's kind of like the fat arrows in JavaScript, right? Yeah, like I, I kind of accept that when you do a do, it says like, oh, this is more like a, a looping structure. Yeah. And if you do a um, a brace, it's more like a closure. Yes. Uh, like a function is being called on, on an iteration. Yeah, that's the kind of stuff that always felt a little strange to me when you when you would do that, when you wouldn't. And I don't know why I wouldn't do one or the other because in my use case, both of them work. So I just kind of stuck with do. <laughs> What is that terminology that's always kind of mathematical definition of a closure? What is that called? You mean a monad? A monad, right. So that's the way when you talk about Ruby, how you're dealing with, like one of those you call a monad and one of them you call it a block, right? So you're kind of defining a block area mm-hmm. or not. Yeah, it's been a few years. It's funny though, I do kind of play with Ruby every once in a while kind of because of the, mm-hmm. the GeekSpeak website. And um, Mostly, I feel like alone in my Ruby development because I don't know any other people that do it. And of course, you were like, "Hey, I'll help you unless we're not unless we're doing Ruby on Rails, and I don't want to migrate the entire system." It was interesting. <laughs> like the last last time we recorded, you, me, and Brian, we recorded actually 
two episodes. And we recorded two episodes, and then I released them staggered a week apart from each other. But I actually edited them all together, got them all done, and published them on the website. And then just set the published date to be the future mm-hmm. day of Monday. And there was this ama- – I'd never used that feature before. <laughs> I always just edit and get it published as quick as mm-hmm. possible, right? But having that idea of like, well, I want enough people to see this episode versus the last one, and therefore I want it to be downloaded. Mm-hmm. So I went ahead and set it up to, to publish a week later. Just the realization that that system worked and it just happened automatically was – it made me love the system I built. <laughs> <laughs> now, there is something about Ruby that, I'll be quite honest, freaks the hell out of me as a developer. What's that? I was looking at how to do uh, color highlighting for the results that were coming back. I wanted the yes. bad results to be uh, – or I wanted normal results to be in like this muted gray, like it's just normal console color. I wanted mm, – this is kind of looking bad to be a yellow or a brown. Yeah. And this is bad red, and this is catastrophic blinking red. And your and you're standard out – standard out is actually the, the target for your for your test, right? Uh, the, terminal out. This is meant to be an interactive program. Someone oh, okay. types it. The we ha- there are already tests that are made for overall integration that will run do everything. This is more for spot checks. Okay, and that was the intention. Was that you're there, you're going. Okay, what does it look like here? Wait, what does it look like on test? What does it look like on UAT? Let me go back here to be able to just run one or all the tests like on each one of those environments at a moment's notice without mm-hmm. having to go through the entire test framework. All right. The way that it was uh, – one, there's a Ruby gem for it. What was the gem that you used for coloring, for syntax highlight? Well, see, that's part of the story here. Colorize is yes. the name of it. Colorize can do HTML out too, can't it? I don't know okay. because I didn't get to use it. By default, Mac OS, like Mojave, will block you from installing gems. So you'd have to do a brew install of Ruby – to be able to install gems, to be able to use them with the system. And that kind of defeats the purpose of like, wait a second. The rest of the framework, you just, it can use the Ruby that's in there. Do you use RVM, like Ruby version manager? We'll put that at the user space. Right, I could. Or I just went like, hmm, I don't know if I want to even deal with this. It was just like, it was it was more like a personal stretch goal. Like, hmm, it'd be kind of neat if this were in there and I okay. didn't want to put in a whole dependency thing in there. And then I saw, oh, someone has a quick snippet. If you don't want to use Colorize, it's just taking string and adding new definitions like, you know, red, brown, or two str- the string class. String. And I went, wait, you can just add stuff to built-in yes. objects and that is considered normal? <sighs> considered normal. You know, you can do it in the JavaScript environment too. You know, you can you can, you can right but, if you want. But such. there's no end of articles and people on like if you it propose says, do doing this, do this. Yeah, if you propose doing that on sla- on um, uh, Stack o- Overflow, people attack you. Yeah, if you say, "Oh, just override string," like if you, it, yeah, but that's people that's would immediately because, say, "Like you never touch prototype." But, you but never. That, but why is that the case? The reason for that is that. Most of the time, JavaScript grew up in the browser where you are only one of the things that's running in a global space, right? In in Node, why wouldn't you mutate the state? It doesn't matter. You're the only app running. Who cares, right? Because if – Let's clarify that thing we're talking about because not everyone's going to follow our jumping around. What you're saying is that in Ruby, you can say there's um there's strings, there's properties of strings. And one of the things you can do is you can just like make a new method on string class called .red. Mm-hmm. And what that does when you call it 
would be, I guess, you're outputting to terminals, so you're going to do character command characters to get yeah, into the rest escape space, codes, right? yeah. escape codes. So you're basically just going to make a method that wraps whatever the string is that you called it on in, a, in escape characters. Yeah. And when you when you overrode that, when you created that, you're actually just going to touch the stra- the string class and add it to it. It's like mm-hmm. a category in Objective C. It's just you're mutating a, a global app, and that. And that's going to be the entire context of the application execution space, right? Mm-hmm. In a JVM, it would be catastrophic because you'd be mutating the entire JVM. You would never do that. Couldn't do it. But in a context of JavaScript, we've all argued do not do that because another library might be doing something else. If jQuery did that, for example, what would happen if somebody else was using um, underscore or something and they both collided? That was the problem space you're talking about. Right. So, jQuery didn't do it no. because previously the prototype library did. Right. And it was a mess. Um Currently, the if you want to say, is this item in this array? Most people thought, oh, it should be contains. This array contains that. They couldn't do that because there was already a library that overrode the array prototype, a popular library. Contains. Yes. And so they had to use includes and they had to, had to do that with string as well. And that's where you run into it, where... The language is evolving. If you if you make an addition to a built-in object, you run the risk of, well, they thought that was a good idea, and the semantics are slightly different. I get that. But keep in mind, that JavaScript, in the JavaScript world context, everything has to be backwards compatible all the way down to the very first web page that ever had JavaScript in it, right? And it is in some weird ways. So that I wouldn't necessarily say that global persistent context of every single application that's ever written JavaScript always being static is viable. I don't see it as backward compatible. I see it as forward compatibility. Forward compatible, whatever. But I, what I mean is that you never do something that would potentially break some web page out there. There's like this mandate in JavaScript world. That's just not the problem with Ruby. You know everything's going to be executing in the same space as you, right? It's going to be executing that space. It's not like it's going to be more complex than that. I love how the argument is basically boiling down to you can do that in Ruby because it's just not as popular as JavaScript and well, not as I heavily even used. Say it's, just, it's not even just as popular. If it was. If it was a shared, long-term running script environment like JavaScript, then that is a problem because you have some person that tries to do something and all of a sudden it breaks because they've included some old library like Prototype or something. The reason why JavaScript has grown up in that problem space was because of the browser. Without the browser, this is not a problem. I don't know if that's true. Make the argument in the Node script. Like I make a Node script and I want to go ahead and just make .contains work for me because I like the name of it better. Or I want to make it more efficient than something. I don't know. Okay, and then I have my library that does contains, and the existing node server, the long-term support has expired. So I need to go to a new version if I want to actually get any bugs fixed or you know move forward with, I want to have some new library that only sure. works with a newer version. But the application I've written that's using .contains that I've overwritten on the prototype of Array, um, when I do that, and it's my application that's running, mm-hmm. the space to space, so now you're upgrading my, my, you're upgrading my app. Okay, go right. on. Now... You have a behavior of contains that you expect. Yes. And so your app would just be fine. But everything that your app depends upon, all the transitive dependencies, right. suddenly that breaks. So you're saying that I'm and using you have some other no, library and, yeah. And you have no idea why. Because those other libraries will not have necessarily have good logging about what's happening or... Yeah, I agree. You know. I mean, I, the thing is, I mean, my the purist in me, if you will, or the experienced developer in me just goes, ugh, that doesn't feel good. Yeah, and I, I can't I can't argue it very strongly because I I agree it's exactly the problem. You know, you all of a sudden want to use a different colorizing 
uh, library that actually does a better job. But you're not going to totally rewrite your app, and you already have the dot red being written. And so all of a sudden, the new colorizer happens, and all of a sudden, it's not using c- control characters; it's returning HTML on this on the on the string, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden, your entire log system breaks. That's exactly the reason why you don't want to do that. And I think namespacing in general in Ruby feels a little bit – it's a little shied upon. It's like it's not what it's for. <laughs> the domain-specific right. language aspect right. of it is really highly ingrained. Right, and that's the thing. If you're having something that's very self-contained, relatively small – or I shouldn't say small. I should just say self-contained. Yeah. Then I don't see a problem with it. But once you get past that boundary, once you start taking in other libraries, once you start – getting into a, a wider world, something that needs to be maintained over a while, uh, over a long while, it really makes me nervous to use as a language. Yeah. Uh, so for my my one-off script that does this one thing and doesn't pull off to do anything else, doesn't take any dependencies, just takes from the core, I was like, yeah, okay, sure, do it. But, you did it that way, huh? Yeah. Why not just make a quick class that takes a string and colorizes it? Why, why, why put the code on dot red on string? Because that's what I saw as an example. You're yeah. right. I could, could just, switch it over. Um, so, because it was nice, it was easy, right? You liked it. You got sucked in. <laughs> yeah, it's. But that's what a a simple scripting language should be. That yeah. it should be simple, and you should be able to do what you want. But when you get larger and larger, you need it. You need the emergency break. Yeah. So you're gonna start working on the Geekspeak uh, website? Uh, oh, just because I learned a little bit of Ruby. Yeah. <laughs> Get your hands dirty on Rails, baby. <laughs> you can rewrite the. Uh, the weren't you upset about how it's like the current um, object relational model that gets generated by Rails is doing something stupid you don't like in Postgres? There's that. Let's fix it, baby. No, go th- for it. Yeah, there's that. <laughs> there is the aspect. It doesn't affect us for Geekspeak. If we had any traffic on Geekspeak, it would definitely. <laughs> when we were working, no, but when we were working, uh, when I was working on another client, and. They had more than one database. We were set yeah. up in an environment where you had like your main read write, and then you had a read replica, mm-hmm. and then you had a whole separate database that was just for logging. Is this in Rails? Yeah. Okay. Go on. Nightmare to try to go like, how do you have that word split into? I want all of my reads to go from this, and I want all of my writes to I go don't here. Know how you tackle that in Rails? I. It needs a completely separate thing and it requires its own configuration you are no longer in rails anymore you are in this separate yeah. space i was just like well, mm. yeah yeah we don't have that kind of complexity on the on the geekspeak site i've definitely like i think over and over because now i'm especially that i'm doing other podcasts i definitely want the tool that this app is mm-hmm. just to be clear like what the if you when you go to geekspeak.org you actually just see a website for our our podcast which mm-hmm. we've been doing for like 18 years earlier. And you don't see the packet errors at all. You don't see the packet errors. They're there, but you don't see them. <laughs> Your browser might. Uh, no, so what What actually happens when you hit a page is it runs a Rails uh, path value, and it runs a, a controller that loads a view and does and reads from Postgres. And none of this layer is cached. It's all, every time you hit it, you actually hit the database. And you actually hit, like, on... Uh, the index page, you probably hit multiple reads, like multiple database requests, not just one, right? Because the data relationship model that mm-hmm. is being trying to map uh, Postgres, post, map to Postgres, the data layer, is generic and works with multiple database structures. So you get that problem. You can write the controllers to be a little bit smarter, but it's doing things, like right now when you go there, I think I think you get a 
couple hits. Maybe the index page, maybe it's all in one. I can't recall. But there's not high efficiency. If you're doing simple create, read, update, delete, where an entry maps to a table Mm -hmm. cleanly, the normalization is such that, you know, joins are, are rare, you know, that type of thing. It can work, but that's the very simplest model of database. And the GeekSpeak website's a little more complex than that because I understand relational databases and I wanted to make it such that I only had one record of Miles Elam. There is only one record of Miles Elam, right? Mm-hmm. And so when Miles makes a new episode for the show or makes a, a what we call a bit, um, it's a section of the page, those are owned by that user. And uh, when you say what participants or who's actually on every episode, that's also a, rela- a multi-relationship because, of course, there can be you and me and, and somebody else associated with that every episode. And it gives some really cool features, but the model is actually kind of complicated, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, but it will do a join for you. Yes, when you, it all joins. And so you. that's fine. But it gives you every field yep. even though you don't need it. Right, and that's, that's not very efficient. That's something uh, – That's these are among the issues that I now have with object relational management schemes, which I used to be really a fan of. I, I loved them. I hacked on all sorts of ones, extensions for them and the like. You're talking about simplifying SQL by making the data – more natural to the language that you're writing in? Well, that's what people treat it as, and I think that's that's just flawed. But you used to be a fan of it. Yes, because then you didn't have to leave the, the Java language. I didn't have a hatred of the database like many application programmers seem to. Database. Yeah, yeah, a lot of them just treat it like, oh, this is, this is a bit bucket, this is where data goes, and then the application's where all the magic happens. So it's kind of the redheaded stepchild of, of development a lot of times, uh, unless you have someone who really likes and has spent time exploring how databases work, how the relational model works, and what the efficiency lines are on that. And there's a fundamental mismatch there, which is object-oriented programming, objects in general, are an in-memory model. Yeah. So the amount of memory that you have in your workspace at a time, whether it's the entire machine or in a container. By definition, it's a memory object, right? That's what it is. Right. Databases are a query and serialization model. How do you fit a whole bunch of data that may not fit in memory, that may not fit on a yep. single disk, that may, you know, like all these things? And you're querying sets of data. You're not getting atoms of data. Right. You're getting, here's the set. It's, it's declarative rather than this. Uh, when you're programming, you say, do this step A, then do step B, then do step C, and here's how you're going to do it, mm-hmm. and here's how you're going to combine it, and here's how you're going to mutate it. And SQL is declarative saying, I don't know exactly how it's going to happen, but I want, of this set of data, this subset according to this criteria and combine it with this subset according to this criteria. Yeah. And how it gets done exactly is implementation-specific mm-hmm. to whether or not you're running but, MySQL or But it's or also very much a stream of that content, not uh, discrete entities of that set. Yeah. Right. It, when, when it's, we, it's a set. Yeah, it's when set we take, yeah, when we take that set and, and reduce it down to objects, then you've got that problem of the inconsistency of a, a set range versus individual discrete items. But you do need to get those individual discrete items at some level into the programming environment, right? Or are you thinking, what, what, what's your option to move away from that paradigm of, of doing a, an object mapping to that? Uh, what people used to do beforehand, I mean, obviously, I think it should be cleaner than that, but... 
you make a database query, you get your results set back, and then you put it into whatever form you need after that has happened. Yeah. Well, it's really interesting because, of course, lots of times, like on a, a web page or whatever, the, the object, the in-memory object is actually just a way to then translate to the output, right? Like the form that that takes does not have to be an object model. Mm-hmm. You know, it really is, a, it's like a translation layer. Um, but in any case, you and I have a long history of making uh, Geekspeak web pages. A long history of over-engineering Geekspeak websites. Yeah, I don't. I would say that the one that exists right now is not over-engineered because it produces features that I find very effective and useful. For example, right now we don't we don't have collaborative editing, right? We don't have like a Google Doc thing where you and I can both edit at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so then we have discrete collision problems if we tried to make one giant text field that had all our content in it, right? One person will be able to edit at once. Sure. Our system doesn't do that. What happens is there is one piece of information, like the, the title and the abstract of the page, but then everything else is just atoms that are that are uh, added to it and then ordered. Mm-hmm. So I can create atoms and you can create atoms and any of us can order them and whoever... You're talking about the news stories, the headlines. The news stories, yeah, yeah, the way that we actually do Let's our... Let's say the, the title and the abstract are, in fact... <laughs> do collide. Yeah. yeah, they do collide. Um, I, I think there's a, a counter, though, that has to be updated. So if you and I try to write at the same time, the, the second one is going to get an error and show a diff between the two. Right. So there's, I've, I've corrected it at some level. It doesn't really work at high scale, but considering there's like two or three editors at once. It's right, exactly. And we're normally in the same room It doesn't together. work at scale, but we're not running at scale. Right. So, yeah. It's funny, though, because I, I think of like the problem space. When I listen to podcasts and, I, and they say, oh, you got to look at the show notes and show notes. Like the name of the of the service I want to create is called show notes, right? It's, mm-hmm. And and when people say, oh, look there, look there, and then you go and look at their website, just, it's normally just a big text document, right, with some notes mm-hmm. in it, which is fine. It totally achieves it. So our, the over-engineering aspect of it produces an over-engineered show notes page. The amount of traffic we get there compared to the amount of traffic of actually listeners is really different. We had a lot more listeners than actually um, on the, the pages themselves. Mm-hmm. But when you do want to dive into an episode of the show, it's really... There's a lot of content there, yeah. and a lot of content for years and years and years. Since I built, since I turned that thing on in 2004, or 2006, something like that, every episode has you know pages <laughs> of content for it, and that feels good to me. So in some Wait, ways, 2004, what happened in 2004? I think I turned the the. Or I think in 2006, I turned on the current uh, Ruby on Rails Ruby on one. Rails is 13 one. years old. Yeah. Wow. I believe so. It's it's hard to note because, of course, I then imported old episodes that was in an XML format. And you can kind of tell because right. if you open a really old episode. And, and the M text. Yeah. Yes. It was it was an XML form that you and I wrote as well. To rebuild it, would I rebuild it as complex? Probably not, right? I'd probably bring in some tool that allows for collaborative uh, editing and just have one field and mm-hmm. all of us would paste it in. But I'm actually also kind of proud of it. And I feel like if it was given to other people, it would be useful. The ability to just collect news stories with a bookmarklet is mm-hmm. kind of nice. We don't use it fully, but it's kind of nice. Yeah, I'm not recommending we we switch to it, but Django, I have to admit, I'm really impressed with it when I was looking at it because it has an object relational modeling, Yeah, but you have a lot more control about, yeah, but I don't care about all this other stuff. I just want these columns. I don't care about you actually mapping it to an object I just want it to be flat in this case. You know, case. it's really interesting you mentioned Django because when I started up the Ruby on Rails app and I started going on it, I talked to Didi, mm-hmm. who at the time I think was... Big Django proponent. And she was like, you should use Django. And so I dove into it and tried working on it for a while and then got frustrated and stepped away from it. 
Um, I've done the same thing with when trying to rebuild a node that once, you know, got mm-hmm. a couple hours into it and went, nah, this is not worth it. But Django, yeah, I was kind of excited about it. I've been doing a lot of Python lately. Um, and talk about, I, I don't particularly like Python very much either, but I think it's just because I haven't got really comfortable with it. Mm-hmm. I'd like to build a big app in Python. So maybe we should move it to Django. I don't know. Uh, but that object relational mapping, a lot of scripting languages uh, if you make a call to a database, you get back an object with the properties are the name of the fee- the columns that you wanted to get back. Like there's a lot of stuff that's done for you, so object relational mapping tools aren't as needed in these loosely typed languages. Yes, um, like JavaScript, like Python, like yeah, Ruby. That's true. Well, they're not necessary, or what do you mean they're not necessary? Because it, when you make a query on a uh, with SQL. You can decide what the name is of a particular column that's coming back just by saying as. Yes. You know, and that propagates itself to when you get a result set, you say, I want my first result foo. Yeah. You so know. in like JavaScript, you deconstruct that object you got back back into local properties and it would be one line command. All of a sudden, you've kind of got a model. Right. It's not maybe the right features, but yeah, I get what you're saying. And, and then you do like you could do a, a, a array map. Yeah. And put it to the the exact form yeah. if you wanted. If if there weren't something that was already pre made, like you could do stuff yeah, like that. True. With Java, because of the static typing, you really have to have some code that generated to do this, right? You don't have that because result set becomes a result get string and then the name <laughs> and or yeah. an i you know an index off of it which then would need to be mapped to something else unless you were using the result set object itself, which is a bit more clunky without context. I guess what I'm saying is maybe maybe you shouldn't use Java for these. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to use Java for these. I mean, if I'm going to dra- grab any language, I'm going to go ahead and do Ruby because it's already there and just modify it because that's probably the easiest thing to do. Um, Python because of a challenge and what the heck, and Django is right, kind of cool. Right, the GeekSpeak website. JavaScript because I'm really good yeah. at JavaScript. Like, you know, there's all these different reasons to do Yeah, the GeekSpeak website used to be in Java. But we never had to deal with that issue. Like, I just sidestepped it by just saying the data's coming in, it's getting mapped immediately to XML, and then we... I got to say that the one thing about the old format where we had no database, which is flat files, is it was a lot easier to understand where the data was. Right now, when I want to back up a a site, Mm -hmm. I've got to back up the binaries and the database... Uh, the binaries being the images and the MP3 mm-hmm. files and the database. And, of course, the database pointing to those files are kind of a relative – it's locked to the system they're in. So you get – it's kind of clunky. And, I, and I'm I'm glad that I don't have, like, the MP3s in the Postgres database because mm-hmm. the Postgres database can be off – it can be a different service if I ever mm-hmm. need to move it off. And having the, the image payloads be that way would be kind of insane. Um, and, of course, most of the data that gets downloaded – Engine uh, X is actually going to cache that MP3 mm-hmm. file because once we release an episode, you know, thousands of people download one file, and so the, that thing is not involved in Rails at all. Uh, Ruby's not involved at all in that mm-hmm. file grab. And, and um, but I got to say that the the whole idea that we have a dynamic site for something we edit three people edit once a week is crazy. Right? Yes, we should have static files. Just right. generate the static files. Yes, and I have been tempted to move to something that's that form instead where you know it's running and we're using it and then we save static files and then that's the fi- the site the entire site is html static files it just means we have to rewrite everything again <laughs> yeah that's the reason yeah. i haven't done it yeah uh, there are a lot of sites that are like that that are far more heavily used than we are that are far more heavily edited i should say um that you could just write 
just directly to the file system. And for the most part, you're not going to have contention and it's just going to work. I mean, I think that a whole lot of sites that are edit just a little bit and yeah. then read a lot more, you could have a SQLite database okay. there and, and be done and you know, I gotta say work that performantly. When I think about what features I would like in our system that we don't have, it really has to do with chapter marks and MP3 files and mm-hmm. auto-generating video files. So, for example, most people don't, do not know that listen to GeekSpeak because they don't have a player that actually do this. I regularly add chapter marks to the entire show. Mm-hmm. And those chapter mark titles kind of match our news stories on our website. But those are not correlated together, not connected. You can't go from the website, click on a title, and say, I want to hear Miles talk about the story and jump to the MP3 file. Even though kind of all the data is there already, it just isn't stitched together. And then additionally, I add images. If there's an interesting image I've got, I put it in there. So if you're, if you're listening to the GeekSpeak uh, podcast via Overcast, you will actually, which is a player on iOS, mm-hmm. you will actually, that supports chapters, you'll actually see images show up during the feed, right? And so for years, I've been making these images, which like three people ever see. And sometimes I get around to also editing a video for YouTube, which actually gets, you know, some some viewers, but I haven't done that consistently. But clearly, I have all the stories we collect. The stories have images. You've built a tool that scrapes images to use mm-hmm. that. We never integrate it. Then I'm making chapter marks and marking it. And clearly, if I had a tool that allowed me to to link the chapter mark in the MP3 file to the story on the website. I could do the dual linking in that direction. All those features is what I should work on if I'm going to do anything. Well, it's and funny. then auto-generating YouTube videos that actually have chapter titles being put in and the images being put in. Those would be kind of cool YouTube videos for podcasts to watch. It's funny that you mentioned this because I was actually looking at this problem in the last week. Um, for, for us or for something else? For us, yeah. I, uh, I, there's now a really good uh, node library that reads the chapters, no problem. You can see all the chapter marks oh, in the time to start. Well, the hard part is finding the things that write the chapters, not the... Well, I write the chapters manually anyway because I'm editing and I mark it in the file and stuff, and it's actually part of my editing process. No, what so I mean, though, ideal. is you have a tool that allows you to do that as opposed yes. to something that you could programmatically just give an input file and have it do it. Now, what, what, what would be... Who would create the input file? So here's... <laughs> stuff in my office. Here's the <laughs> workflow because I was, I was giving some thought to this. The conical source of truth is the website data that we've already story, right. story centralized. Well, first you would edit the audio. Okay, but to see, what you hold on, hold wait, on. Wait, wait. If I'm editing audio, I I tap M and then I type something. Like I I do that the entire time. That makes a marker file in the way in my in my te- editing suite, which I use a I use a Adobe Audition, mm-hmm. and those markers are actually part of my editing process, so I can make sure to have you know clean spots. I listen to the entire file a couple times. Mm-hmm. I edit things out. I don't always fix our stuff, but if one of us swears, I fix that. Not that mm-hmm. we really do. And then I mark those start points with a with – I type M on my keyboard as I'm listening, and then I type in a little message that says, like, the story is effectively. And then when I export that to a WAV file, those markers get saved in the WAV file because, of course, I have lead in and lead out that go away because the file is kind of mm-hmm. – when you're editing, you, you're cropping. It creates a WAV file, which is a stereo WAV file um, that's kind of our final quality sound. And then I open that up in a tool that's pretty great. It's by the same person that makes Overcast, uh, Forecast. And there I can paste in images for those chapters. But those chapter marks are all there already. Mm-hmm. And then I'm just copying images in, pasting them in. And, and then I put the title in the description. So the MP3 file has all that metadata, which we want. That stuff's there already. The correlation between the two is not a big Except deal. I had a totally different view of how to do it. Okay. <clears throat> so FFmpeg, create it so that you have uh, an MP4 file. But you're the, hold on. Wait, let are you me. suggesting that when I'm editing, I create individual segments? No. Okay. 
So I'm still editing the same way. Complete, let's say you have a complete episode. Okay. Um, make an MP4 of the MP3 audio with just, you know, a static image to begin with, just like our logo, you know, to begin with. And you upload it to YouTube. And with an authenticated account so yes. you can get past 15 minutes. That's going to generate the Q file, the closed captioning for it. So then you pull down the closed captioning for it and look at all the words that are in it. And you compare it to the words that are in the descriptions for all the items and make a best guess. Of, at the matchup. Why apply to YouTube to get closed caption feed? Like, why use their system? Just Because they're use, free. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay. I mean, there, there. You, you can already ha- there's already a service to do this. But. And their um, speech to text is actually pretty good. Right. And, they and do getting offer better. that as a service. You can just give them audio files and give you speech to text back. That's a service Google offers. For free? No. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> because, Miles, that doesn't, that's not as good. Because my source file is individual microphones. My source file actually has my text and your text. So if we're going to... If we're going to do that, we'd go ahead and make a video file. If we're going to freely get YouTube to closed caption mm-hmm. our stuff, which, by the way, I don't think it'd be easy to scrape back down the closed caption feed from YouTube because then people would take advantage of that free feature. No, the the person who made the item can can pull it down. Okay. Okay, but or use a, a service to do this. But if you're going to do this, do it individual tracks, obviously. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> But you find where, you know, the things being talked about, you can have some correlation between the words that are on Mm -hmm. there. Look to see like, oh, I don't have two things right next to each other because then probably you're doing a forward promotion, that type of thing. Uh, I was just totally thinking of like, you know, predictive, use some, you know, AI techniques to figure out like where things were. Yes, (laughs) over-engineering, but this, this is something else that comes up with regard to the site, which is we wrote stuff. Because it enriched us, because it was fun. Yes. There was something new for us to yes. learn and practice with, not necessarily because it required it. So there is a yes. because this is fun for us. Why not make the site generation uh, fun for us? You just explained as well? the last eighteen years of us doing this, right? Because it's <laughs> right. fun. It's not like we make money no, or <laughs> right. Um, then once it comes down, you make that correlation. Then it writes in. Looks at the URLs, grabs the open graph data for the image. You know, for an image to put in. And just does it. So all yeah. you're doing is the audio editing. I, I, I really, I find it, I, I, I don't like the idea of having YouTube transcode it for you because I don't think that final, that's not the final video file. You're going to have to then delete that file and upload another one that would actually have all the footage in it. You can't, oh, I wouldn't think that they would be the same account per se. Like, right. So you're just trying to <laughs> bypass the expense thing. Yes, I am. Okay. Here's the scenario that I actually. Which is not a great, it's not a very large expense. Okay. So, yeah. So here is what, as an iOS Old developer, habits die hard. This is what I wanted to do. I don't know if I explained to you this pattern. We switch over to using our iPhones and iPads to record all the shows. We all take the mics in to our devices. They all sync up to one of the bo- one of the machines in the same working environment. We're all in the same space, right? Local host. Mm-hmm. All of our phones are transcribing our text as we go, and the uh, and the app that we have to write. I have to write whatever um, is syncing those all up. So now, at the very end of this, we have individual tracks with all the text of what they're saying locked to the actual words. So now you can actually edit all the audio as text. Um, And of course, since you've got that text in there, then the matching is easy because you already have it, right? So that's the way to get the audio in. And that app would be a really fun app to have. 
Hmm. So I started using once apples. You have a, once you have a guest, and then you have to make sure that their phone has the app and has... No, you just... The, you. I mean, if I have a guest, I have multiple iPhones. I mean, who cares, right? I just have one for everybody. That's not a big deal. Oh, okay. Additionally, if you had an iPad Pro and you had a multi-audio card in, you could have a couple mics on one device because the... It's not going to be that hard. I, I started using Apple's, tried this out with Apple's uh, text-to-speech, mm-hmm. but they don't, they don't you, it can do it off-box without network connections, mm-hmm. but the interaction, the interface that they give you does both, does either. And they don't tell you how to, you can't control which where it, where it is. So if you do it, you have to have the phone disconnected from the network, then you can do it locally. But if you don't do it locally, it's through them. And then there's, uh, if you abuse that too much, they'll, they'll kill the service. You're only supposed to use fragments, right? So unfortunately, that's not the best way to go. But if you use a different machine learning uh, algorithm to actually do this, then it wouldn't be a big deal. You could do it on on device completely. But also... Wait, I don't actually get what you mean by it's locked to the words. How is that different from uploading the audio to some service to do imagine the on Imagine you're on your phone. You're seeing a transcription of us talking, mm-hmm. color-coded by each person speaking. And at any point, you can tap a spot and say, actually, I want to start recording from here again. That moves us back. It's, it's live editing. You just went, I just made a flub. I just back up until the last phrase. I re, I re say what I do, what I'm talking about because mm-hmm. I've, because I've tapped on my phone saying, I'm going to back up to this. When I started this paragraph, the audio recording file is going to keep recording, but the output edited is going to be all that's going to be clipped. Uh, out. You're, you're... So it's real time editing of the podcast. Yeah. I love this. How we're dealing with our different pain points. You've been doing a lot of the editing. So that's where your pain points are. <laughs> a lot of the editing, all the editing, yeah, all the editing. Yeah. No, the, the real time editing would be a very nice feature to mm-hmm. have. Um, and even not even real-time editing, but actually just notes that that's a spot I want to deal with, right? Mm-hmm. If you're talking along and I interrupt you and then you rephrase it and I, I realize, you know, that let's do that again, Miles. And I just if – I, if I do that while we're speaking, then that it just adds a burden for me. I have to later listen to the podcast more specifically. Mm-hmm. I have to make sure to listen to that point and fix it. But if it's, it's real-time and I can just type right there, you know, pull this phrase – or just mark it with a, my, a finger saying, get rid of this. And even if I don't do it real time right then editing, later on editing, the mark would be red. I'd go there and I'd fix it. So it would help me a, a tremendous amount. That does raise some questions, though, about what happens when people are speaking over each other because you delete some text. and Yeah, that's why so. you actually – everybody has a phone recording with a mic. It's not perfect, but you can real-time filter out the lower volume stuff. So each mic actually only has one person's voice on it. And then you know the tracks and they're aligned together. It's not a big deal. Mm. There's actually a... a I guess you could also remove the the over-talking as well. You can just have one person just delete that text from there. And as long as you had an easy way of saying replace this with silence as opposed to... Yeah, that's not a problem. I mean, I do that all the time. If you you cough or something, I'll pull you out out completely, right? Because if I'm speaking Mm -hmm. and you cough, there's no reason to have it. However, because we're recording in the same room, my mic is picking up you a little bit. And it's not a perfect, clean cut. Mm -hmm. So if I'm speaking and you cough... You're going to hear a little bit of that cough in the background. But if I fade it out, you're out, mic out completely, it won't disturb your ear. If instead you go, oh, my, oh, Lyle, ha, 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 then the listener can hear you mention my name, and that's distracting. So it's it's depending on how, how much uh, selectivity I use. Right. Now, if you use iPhones, though, how – those do not have as good a noise isolation. How are you hooking up mics to the phone and what kind of mics? Because yeah. obviously you're not connecting up these XLR mics with – Well, actually, the, the recorder, the Zoom 6 that we're using mm-hmm. – um, 
it has a USB and will go into an iPad with stereo audio. So I could feed this into an iPad, but only stereo. Um, and I don't think the iPhones support that, but the iPads do, which is really frustrating. Uh, yeah, so there's a bit of a... Well, conf- if you're recording speech, what does it matter if it's stereo? Why not just do mono? It's not about the stereo. It's about how many tracks. So oh, okay. this recorder can hold, handle four, four tracks. You know, if, if we have four people speaking, I can't really take all that in as separate channels. Additionally, the one thing I hate about the, H, the H6, Zoom H6, is that even though it's got an SD card, and that's how I record all the time. I always mm-hmm. just record right to card. That way, if a machine crashes, who cares? It can also be a USB and go to my computer, and I can f- read data in to the to the uh, iMac, mm-hmm. to to a Mac or to the iPad. Um, I can't do both. I can't record it as multi-track and also feed it in as USB at the same time. Why? Because they hate me. I don't know why they do that. <laughs> because they have a certain amount of channel data, and it just gets it's something rapid. about it's yeah. something about deciding to switch to USB and then having the audio line not going to the SD card and go to the USB instead. It's just a bummer because I would totally use this to go live to my computer if it could also record the backup. This brings me back down to hardware because, of course, I went to school and studied electronics, right? And then I went in the electronics field in audio broadcasting. Like, I know a lot about signal processing. And so part of me wants to just make a really good XLR to iPhone device, right, which would not be that hard. Though you do have to have a higher voltage than you traditionally think because that's where we clip. Something occurs to me. Mm-hmm. This is an H6, which means it supports six channels. Yes, it does. Um, you see the mic in the front? Yes, I do. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's a stereo the, mic? That's a stereo mic, but also it's got an eighth-inch stereo in. Okay, so... And there's adapter. You can put two XLR in the front of that, too. So going on a total side Tangent. rabbit hole, I'm wondering, are you actually recording on that? Stereo at the same time with the other tracks? Is it recording? Currently not stereo recording the room. You see that um, on the front of this, is there's six buttons. Mm-hmm. L and R, that's that microphone. And then one and two, I'm one, you're two. So right now I'm not recording that. I have recorded, when we do live events, I normally record the room with that. I'm wondering, just thinking out loud. Yes. Spitballing, as it were. If you had that on, and then everyone had their own mic, couldn't that be used as a track to remove ambient noise? Yes. But it doesn't, it wouldn't really, what ambient noise? Well, I guess. You could subtract the room noise, yeah. The thing is, what your mic picks up of me is different from a phase from what this mic in the room would pick up. So it's still, the thing thing that's also frustrating about all this is that we've solved these problems. There's a $1,200 application you can buy that will completely eliminate other noise on the channel. It will remove, it will fix so much audio. And they're using machine learning to do it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I just haven't thrown down the big bucks to buy the $1,200 application. It's really tempting. The show cause... budget doesn't doesn't pay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, since we're doing Switch Inside Baseball, I'm going to talk about another thing about the show budget. All right. So we have 25 people that are actually, I think, just got to 26 people. Every month are giving us a dollar, $3, $25, a couple of people doing some high met values. Thank you, guys. Um, anyway, people have decided to... Give us some money every month, which mm-hmm. is awesome. And a while ago, we were doing an episode. We were doing an episode every week, you know, for like sixteen years, right. seventeen years. We were doing an episode every week, and then I started doing other podcasts, and then started mm-hmm. getting extract, and it became like once a month. So I started to feel guilty about like pulling this money from people mm-hmm. and they're donating. So I told the patrons, "Hey, everybody, stop!" I think I mentioned this in the show at one point. Please change it. We'll just do it such that every time I upload an episode, I'll charge you. So please reduce the amount you're charging to make that work. So now, when I upload an episode, I charge the patrons. Well, 
I've been doing about once a month, and this month, this is like, I don't know, the third, or maybe I'll have four this month. I don't know. Mm-hmm. February, I should say. This is this is actually March 4th now, but February we had two. Yeah. So the question is, do I charge them more than once a month? I feel like a little weird. Anyway, that, that money comes out to about $100 per charge, if you will, per amount. The expense of the show is about $40 for hosting fees. Mm-hmm. The extra money kind of accumulates, and I have a painful tax thing that happens. <laughs> but I do, I do try to use that money to buy either equipment. I could buy stuff every once in a while. We've spent a lot of money on the, on the equipment we currently use. Or I use it for um, ads. But it's one of those things where it's I, – I feel weird collecting money. I like – I appreciate it. I'm glad that it's neutral from a show – like a cost from mm-hmm. my family. So my wife's not – completely upset at me for throwing money into this fun project mm-hmm. but part of me is like why am i doing money at all just i'll just pay for it like i don't i shouldn't collect money right. and i'm always in that debate space which i guess i'm just too wishy-washy but twelve hundred dollars is still twelve hundred dollars is a different <laughs> level <laughs> i gotta i gotta talk to her about that yeah that's why i haven't done it and also the audio quality is good like that's the right. one the one positive feedback i consistently get about geek speak is the audio quality is really good People are polite, right? They want to say something nice. They're like, the audio quality is good. <laughs> it's like telling an artist, your technique is so refined. Oh, so, yeah. Your brush work is good. <laughs> I'm Lyle Troxell. This is GeekSpeak. GeekSpeak is your registered service market. David Lawrence is used by permission. And GeekSpeak is Creative Commons Attribution 3.0. You can use our stuff any way you'd like, as long as you give me and Miles some credit. Or GeekSpeak some credit, whatever. You can learn more about the show at geekspeak.org. Every episode has a page about more stuff that we talked about. If you'd like to be a patron of GeekSpeak, that'd be lovely. You can join us at geekspeak.org slash support. And all you do there is click on the patronage. And, go, and then you go to patron.org, whatever, um, and donate some money. And once you've donated some money, I will send you off. The first time you get billed, I'll send you off an invite to our Slack so you can ask us questions behind the scene and introduce yourself to us and all of that. I'm Lyle on Twitter. Miles Elam is Miles Elam on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Is that good? Yep. Sound good? Sounds good. Well, thank you, Miles. It's been a pleasure chatting with you today. You too. Hello, I love you. Won't you tell me your name? Hello, I love you. Let me jump in your game. The eating cheese means all this audio is completely useless. I'm not going to use this. I'm not going to torture our listenership by you eating string cheese. And... Let, me, let me finish it. Oh, God. <laughs> I'm hungry. Let me, let me just throw up in my mouth a little bit. Okay, what do you think of the storage room slash soundproof room? Pretty awesome, right? Yeah, it gives the cheese sound. <laughs> you can really hear the cheese chewing. Oh. I'll be done. <laughs> <laughs> totally, I'm totally going to use this somewhere. I don't know where. <laughs>